I love seeing your faces. What a gift. We're going to try to get through this. It might take a minute. <clears throat> We're continuing our study of John by reading in the 11th chapter. We're going to read verses 28 through 44. The Gospel of John, chapter 11, 28 through 44. In those blue pew Bibles that you have, it can be found on page 897. <clears throat> when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. 
Well, Dan may have started a new tradition uh, in letting us know how uh, a catechism class went. Uh, I was listening to the sermon last week and understood that there is a time in the catechism class when those who are being taught pray for the preacher. And Nathan said last week, I don't know if I'm going to ask you to do that in, in real time, but it's what we need. Well, guess what? We're going to start with about 20 minutes of silence. 20 seconds, excuse me. 20 minutes. That would be interesting. That would be interesting. It would take that long for me, yes. We're going to start with about 20 seconds of silence. And I'm going to ask each of you quietly and silently, would you pray for me as the preacher that I would rightly preach and understand God's word. And here's why. Because you and I need it. So please, pray with me. Father, we come this afternoon together to your word, and you have said in your word that your word is living and active, and that it's sharper than any two-edged sword, that it penetrates to the very core of our being. You have said metaphorically that it divides bone from marrow, and that you have made it very clear to us that it uncovers the intentions of our hearts. And Father, today, we draw near to you and we pray that your word would uncover the false beliefs that we have of you and replace them with right belief. But Father, we pray that it wouldn't just be right belief that we are gifted with today, but we pray that that right belief would lead us to right action before you, that your name would be glorified. Father, our dependence on you is complete and utter. And so we come to you asking you to do what we cannot do. Father, someone has already said it. We long for control. And even as Nathan said in the beginning, you are our God, almighty, who is in control. You make wars cease to the ends of the earth. And so I plead with Francesca together that you would cause the war in Ukraine to stop. Father, we pray that the needless loss of life would stop. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in the churches in Ukraine that today as they glorify your name and meet together and proclaim the resurrection that you would work through your church with power and with might, converting many to belief so that this chaos would not be for naught, but would bring glory to your name. Lord Jesus, we know that you enter into our suffering. We know that you know our chaos. We believe that you hear us when we cry out to you. And even in this passage, we know that you draw us to yourself in the midst of our suffering. And so, Father, I pray for the women and the men in this congregation, in this room, 
who are suffering. Father, would you meet them? Would you allow them to experience in their heart's eyes you rending the heavens and coming down because of your indignation and because of your delight in your people? Lord Jesus, we need to see you clearly. And that is all that we need Because you have said that your own spirit will transform each of us, women and men, into your image as we contemplate you. And so come and be with us. Father, change us so that we are more like Christ. And do this by the power of your spirit. Father, fill us with the hope of the resurrection. Remind us, as Nathan said last week, that that eternal life, knowing you and the son whom you have sent, has already begun for us. That you might make us more ready and willing to live for you now. Father, come and do a great work, we pray. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This is the third sermon from the 11th chapter of John. The first sermon was to the disciples, Jesus explaining to them what was about to happen. The second to Martha. If you haven't listened to it, I want to encourage you to go online and listen to it. A phenomenal apologetic for the gospel, for the reality of Jesus being the resurrection and the life. In God's providence, I was supposed to preach it and wasn't able to, and thank God because I couldn't have done what Nathan was able to do. But isn't it interesting that today, this third sermon with Mary and Jesus is also governed by the same verse that the first two sermons were governed by, verse 4 This illness doesn't lead to death, but it's for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified. This sermon is about Jesus' emotional response in the face of death. This is the final sign of seven that John offers. Some people argue that it's the the penultimate, the ultimate being Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But, But that is not a sign. That is a reality. This is the final sign that is given to us by John. What will we see in this sign? I want to show you the import of Jesus' emotion in the presence of death, both to those who are grieving and toward death itself. That's what you see. What will you learn? You will learn from these verses. Jesus' heart. And in turn, the heart of the Father toward us. And how we are to live in this compromised 
creation. In God's providence, I had been reading a book by Kelly Capick entitled The Embodied Hope. And the subtitle of that is A Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering. That book is on the book table. I'd encourage you to read it. It was born out of an intense inability of the author to care for his wife who has chronic and debilitating pain. He is the one who uses that phrase, compromised creation. How we respond to suffering and death in this world will be directly related to our understanding of God's response to it. And that's what we're about to see in this passage. Jesus' emotional response to death, both in the presence of the grieving and in the presence of death itself. I don't know if you guys have come across this article. It's, it's years old now called The Defeaters of Faith. Tim Keller distilled down for those of us who could never read this theologian named Plantinga this understanding of these arguments that defeat death. And, and the, the topics are inclusive of uh, other religions and evil and suffering of, 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 uh, of the record of Christian of Christians and the anger of God and whether or not the Bible is reliable. That, that's what these article deals with. But in the very beginning, as you begin to read it, Keller says, listen, there are times when people ask questions that their questions need to be responded to. And in many ways, you heard that last week with Martha. But Keller says there are other times when people ask questions and they don't need answers to them what they need is our presence today with the story of Mary we see that Jesus knew exactly what Mary needed it begins in this way that Martha called her sister, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. Through Mary, we see the emotional response of Jesus in the presence of death, both of the grieving and death itself. First, Jesus' emotional response to death in the presence of humanity. A theologian by the name of B.B. Warfield wrote a treatise titled On the Emotional Life of Our Lord. And he talked about Jesus' compassion and love, his indignation, his annoyance, his joy and his sorrow. All emotions that come from the Gospels and their account of Christ. Here in this story, 
we see Jesus' response to death in the presence of humanity. The first thing that we see is that Jesus wants Mary to see it. He calls Mary to himself in verse 28. We read in verse 31 that those who were with Mary assumed that she was going to the tomb to weep there, and so they followed her. This isn't for Mary. This is for all who weep. It's the opposite of what Jesus did with Martha. With Martha, he spoke to her. But with Mary, he doesn't say a word to her. Mary comes into the presence of Christ with the same confession as Martha. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Nathan did a great job explaining how that was not a rebuke, but a confession of faith. She falls at Jesus' feet in verse 33, weeping. It's important that you understand that the word weeping there is not the tears that you will see me shed in just a few minutes, but it is actually the wailing of grief. It is audible. It is loud. It leaves an impression if you have ever done it or observed it, it leaves an impression. But Jesus doesn't speak. Jesus doesn't teach. Jesus doesn't admonish. Verse 33 says this, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, wailing, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you, plural, laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus did not wail. It's a different word. Jesus' tears fell silent. Jesus wept. The force of Jesus' emotional response is actually not his weeping. It is tender, for sure. It is sympathetic, for sure. But the force of his emotional response is actually hidden in verse 33 in that phrase that he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly agitated. We're told that in that state, he joined in the procession to the tomb, silently crying. As a child, I thought this was the best verse in the Bible. I thought it was the best verse in the Bible. Why, children? You know why. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Two words. 
Jesus wept. I got that. I've memorized scripture today. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. John 11, 25, 35. But now as an adult, don't we see that verse differently? Jesus wept. But the emotional response to death and the presence of humanity isn't focused on his weeping, but it's focused on his deeply moved. And the reason why I know that is because we're going to see the same word, he was deeply moved again, in the next paragraph. This is John's point. He's saying, what is Jesus' emotional response to death in the presence first of humanity, but then of death? And listen to how it works. The actual focus of this narrative is on his being deeply moved, and it's a hard word. Look at the bottom of your text. It also says indignant, but when's the last time you used the word indignant? Some of your phrases or some of your translations say that he groaned in his spirit. All right, what does that mean? The message, Eugene Peterson, actually says that deep anger welled up in him. And that's the closest we come to how this, year, this verse, this, this word is used in classical Greek and in, the, and in the Greek of the Old Testament version and in the other New Testament places. It is actually rage. Jesus was enraged in his spirit, in the presence of death. B.B. Warfield, this philosopher, theologian from Princeton, who I have been reading, says that it is an enraging that has an audible outburst. Thus this conception that people who saw Jesus understood that there was in him not just a moral response, of calling something bad or good, but a moral response that moved him to reply and to, and to blurt out, Ugh! in the presence of death. This irrepressible rage, as Calvin says, that tore at his breast and clamored for utterance. Wow. Jesus' emotional response in the presence of death with humanity. This irrepressible rage at this perceived wrong. It created an agitation in his body that was recognizable. And how does this Jesus interact with humanity? With those descendants of Adam who brought this into the world. Surprise of surprise, Jesus' silent tears, his solidarity with them as he asked them, Where have you laid him? Come and see. And he walks with them and cries. As another writer said, he wept with the grief 
of which he was a witness. This story we've already been told in verse 4 is for the glory of God, the revealing of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified and revealed through it. God's indignation and wrath at death and suffering among his image bearers is not new to this chapter. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 18. You know it, how the psalmist cries out in agony, God, help me. And the cries of the psalmist reach the ears of the Lord, as it were. And it says that he rended the heavens, he tore them apart, and that he came down and he was angry, it says. And he rescued the psalmist because he delighted in him. Isaiah 53, 4 says of the suffering servant of the Lord, surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrow. I want to ask you, do you know this? Do you know that this is Jesus' emotional response in the presence of death with humanity? This is God glorified, God revealed. You and I must know this. We have to. So what is Jesus' emotional response to death in the presence of death? That same word is here again in verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again. And again, Understand what deeply moved means. Irrepressible anger, moral outrage in the presence of evil and death and the destroyer. Again, John Calvin says, tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but they are incidental. His soul is held by rage. And he moves toward the tomb as a champion toward conflict. The battle commands that Jesus then gives. In verse 39, take away the stone. Have you been in the presence of people with grief before? Pretty crazy things that want to happen. Little kids around Dead bodies go and touch them, sometimes hold them, sometimes cling to them. People may or may not do things that make sense to you. Martha wonders, is Jesus gripped by grief? This is illogical. He's been dead for four days now. The stench, the decomposition. Lord, please don't don't have them move the tomb. Here you see what Nathan explained last week, that though Martha understood that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, the concept of bringing life from death in the middle of history doesn't make sense. Jesus don't do that. But in verse 40, Jesus says to Martha, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What is she to believe again? 
but that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He said to her, do you believe this? And just a few verses shorter, she said, yes, I believe. And then Jesus reveals that he has already prayed to the Father about what's about to happen. Look at verse 41. Thanksgiving for a prior prayer. Isn't that amazing? Verse 41 says this. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. He's already prayed to the Father. But why did he pray? Verse 42. I knew that you always heard me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus has been sent to glorify the Father, to reveal the Father, and in revealing the Father that the Son of God might too be glorified. He too might be revealed. To reveal not just the emotional response of Jesus in the presence of death, but the power of the Son to give life. And then verse 43. Can you imagine the silence that must have followed as these words were uttered? Come out. Unbind him. Let him go. What do you remember about the voice of Jesus from the 10th chapter of John? I am the shepherd of the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. No one is able to snatch my sheep from me. The Father who has given them to me is more powerful than any and no one snatches the sheep from him. The Father and I are one. And Lazarus. Waddles out of the tomb. There's no other way to describe it. He couldn't have done anything but that. And Jesus tells them, unbind him, let him go. The words of Christ, be still to the storm. Come out to the demon possessed. Stand up and walk to the paralyzed. The sign that God who upholds the universe by the word of his power will conquer death by that same word. Lazarus, come out. That word who became flesh. Jesus. This is a sign of what would happen permanently at the reality of the cross where our transgression was laid upon that word who became flesh. And as he died, because the wages of our sin is death, he, the perfect 
Son of God, defeated death and was raised, passive, was raised to eternal life so that he could say, I am the resurrection and the life. And so that the purpose of the gospel of John would be made known that seeing these signs, we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we might have eternal life in him. And the question that is asked of Martha is asked of you and of me. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus' emotional response in the face of death to humanity is the same rage, but it's the rage that, that leads to sympathy and tears. Jesus' emotional response in the, in the presence of death is that same rage that leads to destruction. That's the connection in these two paragraphs. That is Jesus' emotional response to death. Why do we need to witness this emotional response to Jesus to death. It is for our own assurance first that he is likewise calling you and me to him in our suffering. Martha went to Mary and said to her, the teacher is calling you. The teacher has something to show you, not something to tell you, but to show you. Listen, if you don't grasp this about Christ, you're either going to be moved to make your sin less sinful than it really is. You're going to say it's not that bad. I want you to know something. Death is normal, but it is not natural. Death is normal, but it is not natural. What is going to happen when Jesus comes back is that he is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more suffering. There will be no more crying. There will be no more death. We don't have to deny our sin and our suffering, but neither do we have to be crushed by it. Because Jesus' emotional reaction toward us and toward death are triggered by the same rage and yet result in radically different actions. The Son of God and the Father himself is revealed, he's glorified for us in this narrative that in his rage and his wrath he draws his image bearers to himself, and he crushes death the same way he created life 
by his word. That word become flesh in Jesus. But the last reason in the ending of this, why we need to witness the emotional response of Jesus is for our own transformation. Listen, you and I need to be changed in the presence of death and suffering, in the presence of injustice, in the presence of war, in the presence of division, in the presence of human tragedy. We need to be moved from indifference and denial and distance to engagement. And engagement with our full humanity. Not devoid of our emotions, with our emotions. That we might be enabled to respond morally in the same way that Jesus did. He didn't just call something right or wrong. He did something about it. That's amazing. And understanding Jesus changes us so that we might be faithful image bearers living in this compromised creation. Creation is compromised, you guys. And death is the, is the, is the starkest reality of that, the last enemy to be defeated. But the injustice that is all around us, the wars that are raging even now, the fears that attack your heart are part of a compromised creation. And the way that we engage with that will be shaped by our understanding of Christ. Bradley, how do you know that? Because the Apostle Paul has said it. 2 Corinthians 3. As we contemplate the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into his image. Listen. We're about to come to this table. This table that Jesus gave his disciples after he called his disciples his friends. This table is a table for us that proclaims the reality of what Jesus' emotional response and rage did to death. And Jesus gives us this. I'm going to stop there. There's more on the page. But I'm convinced that there's more here for you and me. Would you pray with me?